listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. It's good to see you again this new year. Uh, if you want to be taking out your Bibles, we'll be in Deuteronomy 17. And next week, we're going to start our new fall series about the life of David. I'm so excited about it. It's going to be a great series. But this morning, we're going to take a step back, and we're going to look in Deuteronomy to where God gives instructions for the king. I want to start off by telling you a little bit about our own history. Uh, Adam was talking about history. Well, in 1961, in Goldsboro, North Carolina, a B-52 bomber was flying a training mission and uh, on this training mission, it, it had inside of it two live atomic bombs, which became very problematic when this plane got a fuel leak. And the, flame, the plane began to crash, and as it began to crash, it began to spiral around. And as it began to spiral around, the centrifugal force pulled the launch lanyard of one of those atomic bombs, and down it went towards the ground over North Carolina. And as it plummeted, that atomic bomb went through three out of its four activation steps. Hit the ground. By God's grace, it did not explode. And experts would later to say that the only thing standing between the citizens of Goldsboro and an atomic explosion was essentially a simple light switch. Just two wires connected is all that stood between us and the first atomic bomb going off on our own soil. But y'all, that's not even the worst uh, near accident we've had with a nuclear bomb. In 1980, in Mark's old stomping grounds, Damascus, Arkansas, we had a silo, an underground silo of a large Titan II missile. These were the missiles, these huge missiles. They were about 80 feet tall. They were meant to shoot up into space, fly through space, and then rain down, most likely, on Russia. Well, this Titan II missile, it had on it the largest nuclear warhead the U.S. had built at the time, 600 times more powerful than the bombs we dropped over Japan. Well, on this day in 1980, uh, uh, Air Force uh, uh, soldier was up there doing some routine maintenance. He was about 70 feet high, doing some routine maintenance, and he had this large socket. It was about an eight-pound socket, and when he got done with it, he dropped it. And that socket dropped 70 feet down, struck the side of that Titan missile, and thousands of pounds of liquid jet fuel came pouring out. Over the next few hours, the Air Force essentially sat around and said, we don't know what to do about this. What can you do? The, the jet fuel is pouring out in any second. It could self-ignite, and this huge explosion is going to happen with this nuclear warhead right there. So all they could do, they, they kind of opened the silo doors to kind of ventilate the jet fuel, but it didn't work. And early in the hours of the morning, it exploded. And the explosion was so large, you could see it from miles away. It was so large that most people thought that nuclear warhead had exploded. But again, by God's grace, it didn't. The Pentagon, the Pentagon today acknowledges as many as 32 what they call nuclear broken arrow incidents. These are incidents where an accident has put Americans at imminent risk of a nuclear explosion. Not by the enemy's weapons, not by the any enemy's nuclear warheads, but by our very own. And there's a great irony in that, isn't it? 
We build this arsenal of nuclear weapons because we think, man, our biggest existential threat is all those other nations out there. It's out there. But that's actually not how it plays out. How it plays out, actually 32 times over, our biggest threat has been in here. So this is the message of our passage today in Deuteronomy 17. These are instructions for choosing a king, and God is going to tell them, okay, you're going to want a king, and when you pick a king, here's what the king is supposed to do. And God's central message of this passage, it's our big idea this morning, is this. The biggest threat to a nation, a leader, and a soul isn't out there. It's in here. The biggest threat to a nation, a leader, and a soul isn't out there. It is in here. So let's read from God's Word, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may put a foreigner, you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, You shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Verse 18, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read, it, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Well, this passage, it may not come from one of the books of the prophets, but it's a, we're going to find out it's a very prophetic passage because God calls it. He tells them exactly what is going to happen. He says, okay, kings, when you get in power, three things you're not supposed to do and three things you are supposed to do. Let's take them in order, the things they're not supposed to do. First, he says, don't get a bunch of horses. Or what's up with that? Does God just not like horses? Does he want to ruin every little girl's birthday party in Israel? Is that what he's after? No. Horses were the most powerful weapons of the day. They were their version of the nuclear arsenal. It was their version of tanks. So if you got on the battlefield and all they had was a bunch of men with spears and you had a bunch of big strong horses, you're feeling pretty good about your odds, right? You're going to win. You've got the tanks. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with having a strong military? In fact, that sounds pretty wise. That sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Here's what God's going to tell them, and it's in this passage. He's saying, listen, it's not, the problem isn't what these things do for you. The problem is what these things do to your heart. That's going to be the problem. He's saying even bigger than the threat out there of all those other nations is the threat in here, he says, when you do that, your heart will stray. And he tells us how this works. He says, don't go back to Egypt. Really? Is that really a temptation? Back to Egypt? 
400 years of slavery, being tortured and beaten, building bricks without straw, all that stuff that he has to say that? Don't go back to Egypt? Anyone here? Let's say you've been in prison, not for 400 years, let's just say 10 years, you've been in prison. And I say, hey, you, you want to come back with me? Let's go back. Anybody up for that? No. So is that really a temptation? Don't go back to Egypt? Yes, it is. Because guess who has the horses? Egypt is like the Silicon Valley of horses. And God's warning them. Here's what God's saying. He's saying, listen, you're going to be so scared of your neighbors, so determined to build up your defenses, so determined to be secure in yourself, you will willingly return to the place of your own slavery. Now, when you say it out loud, it sounds insane, right? But we all do this. We all do it. Isn't so much of our continual, habitual sin about making deals to build up our own defenses? Your temper or your pride to fight off anyone who may see any weakness in you. Your sloth, your inaction to avoid risking pain or disappointment. Our frantic pursuit of perfection to mask the flaws that we know we have. We're trying to outperform our own imperfections. Here's essentially what Egypt would come, or Israel would come to say. Yeah, sure, maybe years ago, you know, when we were on the run, God parted the sea for us. But man, doesn't it seem like a much better idea next time around for us to just have our own horses? Won't we be much more secure if we can just have our own horses? Well, that's a good question. See, the truth is, most of us don't have to be dragged off to slavery. Most of us go willingly because we are looking for weapons to battle the threats out there. But God is trying to say, no, 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 don't forget the threats in here. It's your own wayward heart that will walk right back into your own slavery. So be careful of acquiring weapons. Next, he says, don't acquire lots of wives. And understand this, we need to understand the purpose of wives. The purpose of marrying foreign wives, it was networking. It was like international diplomacy. And so you had a bunch of enemies around you. One way to try to make peace was you'd marry the daughter of the king, and that way you guys kind of had some mutual interest, okay? And that was a very common way that they made peace with their neighbors back then. It was just international diplomacy. And again, the, the threat, the reason God is warning them isn't because of the wives themselves. It's not like the wives were going to sneak in an AK-47 and stage a coup. That's not what God is worried about. The threat's in here. He says in verse 17, your heart, these wives will turn away your heart. And we see this all throughout Israel's history. This is what happened. Time and again, their hearts were turned away from God through synchronization. See, they weren't just marrying a wife. They were marrying a culture with different gods and different values and different ways to worship. And the, inevitably, it happened over and over and over again. I mean, it's like the same record on repeat throughout the Old Testament. That first the king and then the people would adopt the culture and the values that were brought in. They would mix it in with their own worship. And the way they would do this, it wasn't that they would just all out reject God and reject Yahweh. They would just start to worship God in a way that blended in really well with their neighbors. 
that blended in really well with these other cultures that were coming in. So listen, y'all, they retained the title of Yahweh worshipers, but really they were just a distortion of what God was really like. And this was the exact opposite of what God's wanted for them, what God's purpose for them was. See, God's purpose for them was, hey, the whole world is going to know what I'm like by watching you. They're going to see you, and they're going to know what I am like. So therefore, you must not blend in with everybody. You must be distinct. You know, it's interesting. To this day, you can go to Israel, and and next time we have another Israel trip, if you can go, I can't encourage you enough to go, you learn all kinds of things. And one of the things, I remember I, went, I got to go uh, a few years ago, and one of the things that stuck in my mind was you can go and they've uncovered these altars uh, of Baal worship. Baal was one of these foreign gods that got brought over, and the Israelites would synchronize with over and over and over again. And they've uncovered all, actually a lot of these altars, and the altars were used for child sacrifice. Can you imagine? They would sacrifice their own children. And they would do that because the gods needed to be appeased. And they could be manipulated. So if you gave the God something valuable, he would like you and he would make your crops grow and he would bless you and prosper you. And if you didn't, you may make the gods mad and he would smite you. Thank goodness we don't believe that anymore, right? Well, some of these altars are very different. And they're not different because of anything having to do with the altar itself. It is exactly the same as countless countless others. What is different is the inscription above the altar that says, dedicated to the worship of Yahweh. The Israelites said, we'll keep worshiping Yahweh, but we'll just do it like they do it. See, in synchronizing with other cultures, Yahweh, to outsiders and even to the Israelites, Yahweh started to look like just a carbon copy of Baal. And that was the danger of synchronization. See, the threats in here were much greater than the threats of invasion from out there. Our hearts would go astray willingly into those other forms of worship. And I think this is an important point for us, y'all, because there is no no culture in history that is easier to do this with than the one we're living in today. You know, too often the way, the best way to kind of make peace with the world around us is to just blend in, is to just look like the world around us. And so too often when people encounter believers, people encounter God worshipers in their homes, in their churches, there is no discernible difference in our homes, our relationships, our schedules, our checkbooks, or even how we worship God. We're blending in. You know what the sad part about that is? The sad part is every once in a while, somebody wakes up from their slumber. You know, they begin to awaken to this hunger in the soul and they realize all the sports teams and activities and the playing golf, yay, even all the 10-point bucks on the wall aren't enough to bring them real joy. They begin to encounter problems in their life they can't solve and questions they can't answer. And so they begin to look for God. And too often, you know, they come churches, and they come into our homes, and you know what they find? Essentially, a carbon copy of what they see out there. That is the danger of synchronization. Because the church is supposed to be something different. It's supposed to be a visible, living, breathing picture of who God is. And that's what Israel was supposed to be, and that's what the king especially was supposed to be. 
I found some statistics this week that really surprised me, that bear this out. Because, you know, we're often led to believe, hey, the world out there, they all think religion is dumb, they think Christians are dumb, and they are just not interested, okay? But recently, the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism did a, a study of unbelievers, and here's what they found. They found that 90 or 79% of unchurched people are willing to have a conversation about faith with a Christian friend. About 80% of people would love to hear what one of their friends who is a believer, why they're a Christian and, and what they believe. Absolutely open to it. 50% have said, I would go to church tomorrow if a Christian friend would invite me. But only one-third that someone has explained to them the benefit of being a Christian. Only a third say, yeah, one of these people that I know is a Christian has taken the time to explain to me what they believe and why. You know, they kind of surveyed the reasons Christians don't engage a little bit more, and there's a lot of different ones, but they essentially all boil down to one reason. Y'all, we just want to blend in. We're just trying to blend in. We don't want it to be awkward. We don't want it to be uncomfortable, and we're just busy kind of doing our lives. I think what these statistics bear out is that, y'all, we live in a world that is just as spiritually hungry as ever. But if we're too busy marrying the culture, just blending in, we are not offering them any hope of anything different when they are looking. So that's why God tells the king, listen, don't seek to make peace with all your enemies out there by marrying a bunch of wives. Here's why they will steal your heart and you will no longer be a reflection of me. So don't accumulate weapons. Your heart will lead you back into slavery. Don't accumulate wives. You'll stop being a reflection of me. And finally, he says, be careful of accumulating wealth. Verse 17 says, don't acquire excessive silver and gold. This one is least explained in the text, probably because it requires the least explanation. I mean, there is no more common sense way to gauge how well a king is doing, how well a country is doing than its wealth and its prosperity. Recently, I heard our, our current president, one of the, the new phrases they're testing, one of the new slogans they're testing is, how's your 401k doing? Which sounds a lot like a previous presidential slogan, which was, it's just the economy, stupid. Right? And y'all, those are just way of saying nothing else matters. Pick the leader you think will make you the most prosperous, and that's all you need to know to make your decision. But it's worth noting that some of God's strongest warnings in all of Scripture are for times of prosperity, especially to Israel. This same book, if you were to go in reverse a little bit to Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 17, God issues a warning to him. He says, guys, beware, warning, danger. Not when Egypt is pursuing you into the sea. Not when you're wandering in the desert and don't know where your next meal is going to come from. Beware when you prosper. Because, he says, that's when you'll forget. You'll start to think, you know, I did this for myself. That's when the pats on the back all start. My hard work, my keeping the law, my education, my heritage, my initiative, my wise decisions, these are the things that have brought me prosperity. God says, he warns him, he says, listen, your pride will overrun your faith if you're not careful in those times. You'll stop seeing yourself accurately. You'll forget how dependent you are on God. You'll forget there was a time you were caught between a sea and the Egyptian army, powerless to save yourself. 
You'll forget there was a time you first saw your enemies and they looked so big you cowered in fear, but God crushed those enemies when you couldn't. God is essentially saying is, listen, riches, they may actually do a lot to protect you from the threats out there, but they make you extremely vulnerable to the threats in here. Your heart will forget God. So weapons, wives, and wealth. You can almost, I can almost hear the people of Israel when God issues these instructions saying, well, well, then what's the point? What else is a king for if he's not to protect us and make peace with our neighbors and make us prosper? Then why even have a king? What's well, worth noting, almost every great, powerful nation has crumbled from the inside, not from the outside. So any invading force when they came was essentially just sweeping up the dust of what was left over. And this is the story of Israel. That's why this is a prophetic passage. You can find instances of this throughout the Old Testament, but if you want to see them all together, all in one, if you want to write in the side margin of your Bible there, write 1 Kings 10, 14 through 11, 8. Because you can go read those few verses, and y'all, Solomon, he bats a thousand. I mean, he hits every one that he's not supposed to do. Wealth, verse 14 through 25, says like everything is made of gold. Everything, walls, floors, chairs, podiums, they're all made of gold. It says he made silver as common as stone. Can you imagine if we just had silver corn, like a handful of silver coins, just like a handful of rocks? Man, we'd all be on Twitter, hashtag blessed, right? It'd be amazing. Weapons, yeah, he went to Egypt to get those horses. Wives, he had a thousand of them. Beginning of chapter 11, verse 1 through 8, and then you read in verse 4, says this, almost verbatim, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Solomon, it is no accident, is the last king of the United States kingdom. After him, the kingdoms divide, and eventually both will be led off into exile and slavery again. The world around us says being a king is about fighting these external threats through weapons, wives, and wealth. That's not what God says. God says, actually, you know what being a king is about? Being a king is about being holy, humble, and his. Verse 18, he gives some instructions to the king. He says, you're going to get an authentic copy of the law from the priest, and you're going to take it, and you're going to make a copy for yourself. Y'all, there were not computers. There were not even typewriters. This is going to be all done by hand. It is not something he can outsource. This is something he, the king, has to do. I don't know if you've ever written in Hebrew. I did for two semesters, and I don't care to do it anymore. It is a very laborious, technical language. You've heard the phrase, every jot and tittle. That means one little dot, one little mark can completely change the meaning of the word. So this is an exercise that required his full attention for long periods of time. He would have had to focus on it, labor over it. And so by the time he was done, he would have known that word like the back of his hand. He goes on to say in verse 19, and after he makes the copy, he's not done. Then he continues to read it all the days of his life. And apparently by doing this, by becoming intimately familiar with God's word, there would be some results. 
Verse 19, he says it would make him holy. It would teach him to fear God and keep his commandments, not just some of them. He says all the words and statutes. See, the king was supposed to be the first follower. He may have been a king to the people, but he was a follower of God, and he would keep the law. And notice, notice what all the knowing of the law and the writing of the law, knows what it does in him. It creates some change in him. So the king, by God's word, wouldn't just be gathering information. Somehow, that word would be transforming him into a lawkeeper. Somehow, this word would have an effect on him that would protect his heart from the threat in here. It would make him holy. Second, it would make him humble. Verse 20, he says his heart should not be lifted above his brothers. Earlier in verse 14, God said, hey, one of the king, the king has to be one of you, one of his brothers, and he should stay this way. He's not supposed to get bigger than his britches. He's not the head of the pyramid. He remains one of his brothers. He remains humble. And you can understand how this would happen when one spends their time in God's word, because this king, he would have read that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, that he breathed life into man, that he commands the sun, the moon, and the stars, that he formed his people and gave them this land by his own promises and his own covenant. See, it's, it's hard to think you're a big deal compared to that. So the king draws again. He is the first follower. He would be holy. He would be humble. And then verse 20, he would be his. See, there's a promise that comes along that says he would continue, he and his children will continue long in his kingdom. See, God wanted the, the king to understand that his security was not in all these external factors. His security was in his relationship, his relationship with God and who he was. That's where his security was. It was a covenant. And that's why the request in verse 14 is so crazy. It's not just that they demand a king. They demand a king so that they can be like what? All the other nations out there. But y'all, all the other nations weren't his. So God is saying, hey, your security is that you belong to me. And the people in return are saying, yeah, it's not quite enough. We actually want to be like all the people out there. So God instructs the king, not so with you. King, your feet should be planted firmly. Your foundation is on knowing who you belong to, knowing that you are his. So God's word, it keeps us humble, holy, his, and it is absolutely no coincidence that the crumbling of the nation of Israel coincided with their neglect of the word. In fact, we find out if you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 34, we have a rare good king, Josiah. And when Josiah's king, like back in some woody old closet corner somewhere, actually not the closet, it's like the attic that you get to by the closet, and it's not the forward part of the attic, it's like way back in the corner, he finds a copy of God's Word. And you know, they pull this thing out, and they're like, what is this? Seems like my grandpappy talked about something like this way back when. They have been neglecting it for generations. So much so, when Josiah finds it, there's almost no one alive who's read it. That's how much they neglected God's Word. <laughs> the application for us, y'all, it's almost so simple, I hesitate to say it. You got to be in this word. It's God's gift to you. And it is not just information, it is transformational. It will change you. 
not just inform you. It will help you fight the threats in here. So that's the choice he gives the king, essentially. What's it going to be? Weapons, wives, and wealth, or holy, humble, and his? What about you this morning? What makes your life work? Is it weapons, wives, and wealth, kind of managing and controlling all these external threats? Or is it the fact that you're holy, humble, and his? See, you and I, this is a very important question. This is a key question for our lives. You and I have to decide, is our biggest threat out there, or is it residing right in here? Because how you answer that will determine what kind of king you seek and what you think God's role in your life is. See, Israel came to think God's purpose was to make them just a better version of all the other nations out there, you know, the strongest, wealthiest, most comfortable nation. And so they demanded a king who would protect them from all those threats and make them so. But what if God had a different purpose? What if he had a different purpose for them and for you? What if his purpose is to make you holy, humble, and his? Well, that requires a whole different type of king, doesn't it? It requires a king who will save us from this in here enemy of sin. Because, y'all, according to the Bible, sin is not something out there. It's not something we do out there. Sin is something that lives in here. Well, what type of king can do that? I want to submit to you this morning that this passage in Deuteronomy, it's not so much instructions for the type of king you need to be. It's a description for the type of king you need to follow. Jesus Christ. Think about it. One of his brothers. Hebrews 2 said he became like his brothers in every way. Don't accumulate weapons. Y'all, our king entered the capital not on a war horse, but on a beast of burden, on a donkey. And when one of his followers drew his sword in the garden, Jesus silenced his sword. No wives, no wealth to speak of. In fact, he stood in contrast to the powers around him so much that they crucified him. And his followers didn't even have enough money to buy his grave. When it came to God's word, John 1 says he is God's word in flesh. The word living, breathing, and active. When it comes to holy, he said he completely fulfilled the law. He said, my food is to do the Father's will. Humble, Philippians 2 said, he humbled himself. Even though he was God, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. His at his baptism, God looked down and said, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Colossians 1 says, The fullness of the Father was glad to dwell in him. And y'all, this is the king, this type of king, the revelation says, All the kingdoms of this world, each and every one of them, will become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. It is this king that the word says, Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's the king that can fulfill what it says in verse 20, that he and his children will live long in God's kingdom because he is the king that fulfilled this passage. He is the king that was holy, humble, and his. We're going to close the service this morning by taking communion, taking the Lord's Supper together. And I want to invite you to see communion with a little bit different eyes this morning. I want to invite you to see this not maybe as an old tradition that we've done a hundred times. I want to invite you to see this as a victory celebration. It is the victory banquet of a king who has gone to battle, a warrior king, and has come back 
absolutely victorious. And so now we celebrate because he won the battle that's in here. Colossians 1, 21 through 22 says this, and you, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What he's saying is, while we were still sinners by his death, Christ paid for every molecule of the sin that comes from in here. And he gives us every molecule of his own righteousness in exchange. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.